Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ira Rothstein, who is a professor of physics at Carnegie Mellon University. He is interested in diverse topics in elementary particle physics, gravity wave physics, astrophysics, cosmology, and QCD. In the realm of high energy physics, he uses the data from the LHC to explain the origin of mass and the nature of the dark matter. Welcome, Ira. Hi. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your recent papers entitled An Effective Field Theory of Quantum Mechanical Black Hole Horizons, uh, in which you say we develop an effective theory which describes black holes with quantum mechanical horizons that is valid at scales long compared to the Schwarzschild radius, but short compared to the lifetime of the black hole. Before we get into the details of this, Ira, um, a black hole is, is sort of a, a discontinuity in space-time uh, when you have a, a large amount of mass concentrated in a short, short uh, space-time, uh, and it basically becomes something that we don't quite understand. It's undefined, <laughs> right? Um, and, and because of its characteristics, uh, we call it black hole because not even light can escape from it, right? So... So, 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 could you define black hole um, uh, along those lines? Uh huh. So, you did a pretty good job yourself. Um, basically, it's if you have a, a region of something very, very dense. So, if you took the sun and compressed it to a few kilometers in radius, yeah. um, its gravity would become so strong that it would just collapse and it would form what's known, uh, known as a horizon. That is, you can imagine it's like a ball mm -hmm. that's encompassing uh, some region of space from which nothing can escape. Right. So it's called a black hole because not even light can escape. And if anyone or anything were to fall in, no matter how hard they tried, no matter how powerful of a rocket they had, they could never actually escape the hole. Right. Escape the horizon, which the which is the sort of the... The, fine, the, the radius from which you can never escape. Yeah, so if you take the sun uh, and 
crunch it down to the size of Manhattan, it will become a black hole. Yeah. And uh, we don't know what is in there because uh, ultimately, you know, it's not like a neutron star. It's not something that you can touch and feel. Um, essentially, it's a discontinuity in space-time. And, and so the reason we say that light cannot escape from it is that the, the gravitational effects of a, of a black hole is so high that light behaving like a particle will, will be pulled in, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Exactly. So um, I know that, you know, the, the idea of a black hole came out of uh, general theory of relativity from, from Einstein. Uh-huh, yeah. Schwarzschild discovered it a few years after Einstein. Uh, well, he discovered the mathematical theory of black holes um, shortly after Einstein's theory was developed. Okay. And um, we, I know that the, the recent um, Nobel Prize, uh, I can't remember the names, uh, but it, it is sort of, it's not black hole per se, but a very dense object at the center of our galaxy, right? Which is yeah. considered to be yeah. a black hole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a huge black hole. So we believe that almost every galaxy have um, have black holes this, with masses, you know, tens of thousands of, of the times of the sun. Yeah. Uh, there are also smaller black holes, which have masses around a few times the mass of the sun. So there are different types of black holes. But usually at the center of galaxies, there's a, a huge black hole, which has been accruing matter over over the lifetime of the universe. And that's how it got so big. Yeah, so for the Milky Way, then we we, we think we have a super massive black hole, right? It's, it's uh, is it billions of star, billions of uh, mass of sun? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure of the exact number, yeah. but it's a lot. Okay, <laughs> and so, and so there were some measurements taken over a long period of time of stars going around that center. Again, we cannot see a black hole but we could impute the existence of something there uh, because of just the right. movement, right, of the stars around it. Right. So, so how do you prove the existence of something you can't see? Yeah. Uh, that's a problem. So um, in the case of, this, of the black hole at the center of the galaxy, or in general in, in any black hole, we all have always inferred the existence of the hole from stuff falling, light, light falling in and then becoming black. Right. Yeah. So you see stuff coming in and you see nothing coming out. You see darkness. But in 2016, we actually had direct confirmation of the existence of black holes uh, from the gravitational uh, wave observatory. Mm. So um, probably your listeners may have heard about this discovery, that which also won the Nobel Prize a few years back. Uh, there uh, there are um, something called the, the Large Interferometer, Interferometer Gravitational Observatory. Yeah. Um, there, in uh, there are two of them in the U.S., and they detected the collision of two black holes. And you could ask, well, if they're black and they're colliding, meaning they they don't have any light, how can you see them? Mm -hmm. And the answer is is that when they collide, they um, uh, generate what's known as a gravitational wave. And a gravitational wave is actually like a ripple in space and time, like a ripple in a pond. Yeah. And it traveled to us and uh, passed through the detector. And the detector um, was able to recognize the signature of the waves that came from a black hole. So different types of black holes of different sizes uh, um, collide. And depending on how far away and they are and 
how massive they were, they send different signatures. And from these ripples in space-time, which are measured at these observatories, you can infer the existence of a black hole, in which case, and those signatures are fingerprints. And we know what the fingerprint of a black hole is. And that's part of what I do in my work is try to find what would the fingerprint look like. Mm. And amazingly, fits exactly the fingerprint of a black hole. So we have... Uh, ev overwhelming evidence now for the existence of these objects in our in our in our uh, in, in our universe. Yeah, and and folks uh, still want to see it. <laughs> I think the Hubble pictures um, got everybody's uh, imagination running, uh, and so we have something called the Even Horizon Telescope that's getting some data that we can ultimately we cannot see the black hole, but we could actually see a picture of some sort, right? Right. Yeah. So I think uh, they have some uh, computer enhanced uh, pictures of you could see what's around the horizon. So it's rather remarkable mm. uh, what they can reconstruct from the horizon of the whole. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is uh, it's not done yet. I guess that that's in process. Um, and so so going back to your paper, effective field theory of quantum mechanical black hole horizon. So what exactly is effective field theory? Uh, this is my favorite subject. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's a term that probably most laymen have never heard of, and yet it's so crucial to science. Um, so let me just start by with a historical anecdote. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, 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 science, how did science progress? Well, you know, if we talk about, I don't, I'm not a historian of science, but let, I can randomly pick a, an event. We can talk about Newton first understanding, of course, science goes back much longer than that, but let, let's, let's pretend. Um, Newton was able to figure out the laws of motion, F equals MA, how something slides down a, a block. Right. Now, Newton didn't know anything about atoms. He didn't know how atoms interacted. He didn't know, you know, he didn't know how at, at the atoms of the block would interact with the ball. I was sorry, with the slide, mm. with the, the brick it was sliding down. Yeah. So how is it that Newton didn't need to know atomic physics in order to be able to figure out how a block slides down a plane? Mm. Did that have to be true? So you can imagine a universe where the laws of a block sliding down a plane necessitated an understanding of atomic physics. If that were true, he would have never figured out F is equal to MA because he didn't know anything about atoms. Right, right. So that is a question that, you know, I ask myself and maybe some listeners have asked themselves. And the question is, why is it possible to learn about big things without having first to know about small things? Mm. Uh, and that is the essence of effective field theories, even though the sound, it, it sounds very um, uh, technical, but it's really the question of why is it that we can learn about big things without knowing about small things? Mm. Uh, so at the scale of the universe, um, if, I, if I understand this correctly, Ira, at the scale of the universe, the, the, the theories we could postulate um, do not do not maybe require a, a very detailed understanding of the interactions. Is that is Certain, yeah right? Well, yeah, exactly. So, for instance, if we're looking at you know uh, cosmological questions, does it really matter if I understand how a star burns? Hmm. Right? Not no, not really. Yeah. Right? 
Um, so it's the same. It's the same idea: is that the the science at long distances becomes not. Uh, it becomes less sensitive to the science at short distances. So I, I didn't need to know about the Higgs boson in order to figure out elementary, you know, elementary problems that we study in high school, right? About, about any of those basic mechanical problems. And the question is, you know, did that have to be true? And there are some deep underlying physics reasons why it actually is true uh, that the long distance the nature of long distance science doesn't care about short distance science. If it did, we couldn't have we couldn't have understood biology until we understood couldn't understand how the heart worked until how we understood how cells work. Right, right, right. It's the same principle, and and that would have been terrible. We would have never progressed as a society had that been true. Yeah. So, but but in the area of cosmology, though, I uh, I mean I don't know much about this, but I'm just just uh, throwing this out to get your insight. In the area of cosmology, if you rewind time back, we get to the Big Bang, you know, we, we get to the inflation uh, area. So we are actually talking about really small stuff there, right? So yep. is, is yep. cosmology sort of different in that context? No, no, no. I mean, I, it, certainly we need to understand, um, uh, We, you know, fundamentally, we we need to understand what happens at short distances in order to explain what's happening at long distances. So if you really want to understand um, uh, why the universe is the way it is now, it's not that it's not, it doesn't care at all about what happened at short distances or at early times when the universe was first born, right? Yeah. The distribution of stars uh, and matter throughout the universe is very sensitive to that, but I don't need to know the theory of what happened immediately after the big bang in order to figure out how stars are moving now. Now I'm, I may need to know everything that happened in early times to know where are the stars are. Hmm. Right. But once I, you know, if I don't ask that question, I can still figure out the dynamics of stars without having to know how, where they, you know, how they originated. Right. Yeah. So it depends on your objective, I guess. So, so that's right. Right. So, so, you know, like you say, if Newton went about, his his work and he assumed that he has to take that ball and cut it cut it into pieces and into smaller and smaller pieces before he can understand f equal to ma he would never have gotten there yeah so in some sense what you're saying is that if your objective is to understand things in a large scale maybe the you know maybe maybe your ideas and I, i'm going to make a statement you can correct me maybe your ideas get a bit clouded if you really get into the details of it, is that so right? So what you you know you can you can confuse yourself yeah by forcing yourself to try to understand what happens at really short distances mm. instead of sort of trying to say okay well I don't know what happens at short distances I don't know what the mass of the electron is let's think about that right yeah in terms of the ball but maybe the mass of the electron doesn't matter all that matters is the total mass of all the electrons in the ball, right. right? And if I thought that I needed to know the mass of the electron to understand how the ball rolls, well, then I'm never going to figure it out, right? Yeah, and Einstein is a good example of this, right? Uh, I mean, the, his theories are also, you know, not, it's conceptually so elegant and it describing what is happening without quantum mechanics, right? Without getting into the details. It will certainly... 
uh, he certainly, um, when it came, came to his discovery of relativity, yeah, he, he, there was no need for him to go into microscopic physics in order to figure out the laws of relativity. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And so, so, um, so talk about black holes in this context. So what is uh, Schwarzschild radius again? So the Schwarzschild radius is the radius uh, um, uh, which, uh, at which nothing can escape. So if you think about a ball, then the Schwarzschild radius would be like the radius of the ball and the inside, anything inside the ball would be inside the Schwarzschild radius. That would be inside the black hole where nothing can escape. So, and so that would be the event horizon then for the black hole? That's the same thing. The event okay. for a black for Schwarzschild black hole, the event horizon and the Schwarzschild radius are the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, so when you have, when you apply effective theory uh, to black holes, uh, so so what's the what's the gist of what we can what uh -huh. we can say there? Right. So the question is, uh, if I want to understand the behavior of black holes at long distances, do I I want to say I don't need to know the microscopic behavior of the black hole, which we don't still quite understand, mm. right? So basically what my collaborator and I, Walter Goldberger um, at Yale did was to figure out a way to um, effectively describe the black hole as a point particle, mm. but a point particle with very special properties. Uh, and we imbue the point particle with the properties to so that the point particle is effectively acting like a black hole. Okay, okay. And at the same time, we, we don't have to understand all the details because exactly of the, for the reasons that you and I had just discussed. Yeah, so, so if, you, uh, if, you, if you create something, a point particle, as you say, with all the characteristics of, of black hole, then you can, you can basically forget what is happening inside the event horizon. You can, you can have lots yes. of predictions, right? Yeah. Exactly. Which in, yeah, allowed us to make new predictions that hadn't been made before. Right, right. Okay. And so, 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 so how does the, the quantum mechanical aspects come into that? You, you, say, so, you say in the paper, our formalism allows one to calculate the quantum mechanical effects and scattering processes involving black, black hole asymptomatic states. Exactly. So... You know, if you try to, we still don't understand the details of uh, how the quantum mechanics of black holes. So um, just as a little bit of, of background, so um, black holes were discovered, theoretically, at least, were proposed by Schwarzschild in the early 20th century. Uh, but in the 1970s, so as we were talking about before, black holes were thought to be completely black. Nothing ever came out of them. They were dark. Yeah. Uh, until Hawking... Uh, found that mathematically it was inescapable uh, that black holes actually evaporate through quantum mechanical processes. Mm. So um, uh, that while they look black, they're actually constantly bubbling, they're evaporating. Right. Um, and little particles are coming in and out of existence uh, near the horizon. And some of them manage to escape outside the horizon. And uh, they it looks exactly like a hot object with with some finite temperature. So anything which has a temperature mm. emits radiation and black holes uh, have a temperature remarkably and they emit radiation and and eventually, if nothing else fell in, they would eventually disappear. Um, and and so, so if you get black hole uh, particles, so to speak, 
Um, it, so can you get to Hawking radiation in that in right. that frame? So you would think, well, whatever is causing the black hole has to do on inside. So how could we ever get a particle to um, which has no size to actually evaporate? And and so what what Walter and I showed was we're able to imbue the particle with certain properties that allowed it to actually evaporate mathematically. Uh, and in so doing, because we're now treating it as, as a simple particle, there are things we could calculate that we couldn't calculate before if we were trying to solve the big problem, right? So it's, a, it's sort of a divide and conquer where you simplify the problem, which is what we in science. We try to find the simplest model to give us the greatest power to understand and use it to predict things. So by treating it as a point particle and yet imbuing it with these characteristics mathematically of Hawking radiation, we were able to calculate things that weren't calculated before. Okay. Um, just for my own understanding, Ira, so I was told that, um, that the Hawking radiation, one mechanistic um, you know, sort of explanation for it is that at the, at the even horizon, you have a particle and an antiparticle. Uh, an antiparticle go, goes in and the particle escapes, and that is how the radiation happens. Is that still the understanding yeah, no. or that? that yeah. And okay. so the trick was, well, if you have a particle, it doesn't have an event horizon. It doesn't have. So what does that mean? And that's where the effective field theory techniques that we developed um, came into play, where we were able to um, essentially mock up all the stuff going on at the horizon and sort of stick it onto the particle in a mathematically consistent way. Mm. Mm. And this, uh, this uh, radiation and evaporation still happens in that. Yes, in that absolutely. It reproduces everything, every prediction at long distances that any normal black hole would have. Okay, okay. Uh, we'll take a quick break, Ira. When we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about Hawking radiation. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, Ira, so we are talking about uh, black holes Hawking radiation, properties of black holes, and the effective field theory, um, which simplistically put um, might be uh, might be uh, described as uh, when you try to define interactions or or actions, I should say, in long distances. Uh, perhaps we can reduce um, the details. Uh, into a framework. So in the case of a black hole, uh, you in, in effective field theory, in, in, if I understand this correctly, Ira, you reduce the black hole to a particle. And that allows you to actually focus on a sort of the, what the black hole would do to the universe type questions, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so one, of the, one of the important properties of black holes is the Hawking radiation. And um, this is something that uh, Hawking discovered um, and, 
and and essentially the the discovery of this has some implications for the life of the black hole right ultimately yeah the ultimately we expect a black hole to radiate away completely so in isolation it would radiate away completely um and that actually uh led to um one of the most pressing problems in theoretical physics today which is uh, the amazing thing about black holes when they radiate, the way they radiate is independent of what fell in. So if you mm. if you threw a car into a black hole or if you threw an encyclopedia into a black hole, when the black hole evaporates, um, it doesn't care. It, the, 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 the fingerprint of the black hole seems to be independent of what you threw in. And so why is that a problem? Well, because one of the fundamental laws of science or in information uh, uh, is conserved. Yeah. So you can't get rid of information. So which supposed as soon as Hawking made this discovery, because if I threw a, a uh, encyclopedia, oh, you're, you're, many of your younger listeners probably don't know what an encyclopedia is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if I threw, if I threw a computer with a memory in, uh, you know, 10 gigs of me uh, terabytes of memory into a yeah. black hole um that's a huge amount of information relative to say if i threw in you know a sock right right so right but when the black hole evaporates the final state doesn't care if it's a sock or if it's a or if it's a hard drive so the right. question is what happened to that information and that's the information paradox and is one of the uh most pressing problems in theoretical physics yeah, I mean, that's an amazing thing, you know, from, uh, again, without knowing the details of it, uh, the black hole has ultimately only three properties, right? It's mass, it's spin, and it's charge. And charge, you can probably ignore in most cases. So it actually technically has only two properties. Yeah. And so, so that actually, going back to effective field theory, um, so, so that actually allows you to reduce that into a particle with just two properties. Exactly, exactly. You hit it right on the head. That's right. So, black holes are perfect, right? And they're all exactly the same. Uh, yeah. If you if two black holes with the same mass and the same spin are completely indistinguishable, and that's just like an elementary particle, right? Just like an, all electrons are exactly the same. So, black holes in some sense are truly fundamental particles in that way. And because they're so simple and they only have uh, mass and spin, we can just treat it like a particle with mass and spin. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's, uh, you know, we, it, there are billions of uh, sun's mass in there in a black hole, but you can actually consider that to be more like a quark. Yeah, and some, uh, yeah it's elementary. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a perfect object, right? Yeah, yeah. So you you talked about gravity waves, and so LIGO, which was an experiment that has been going on, and one of the excitements. Um, when was the first gravity wave detected? A few years. Yeah, two thousand and sixteen. At the end of two thousand sixteen, I believe. Two thousand sixteen, yeah. and and this is a huge engineering um, marvel. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's about a mile long um, tunnel. Is it? Yeah, it's two arms that are a few kilometers yeah. long, and it took uh, over thirty years to build it. Um, and the most remarkable thing, well, aside from its scientific achievements, is that no one really knew if it was going to work. 
Uh, yeah. And, you know, people poured their lives into it. Some people worked on it many years and never, you know, didn't live to see its success because a lot of people really didn't think A, it would ever work or B, you know, whether or not it would see anything. It would be like a telescope that had no eyes, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah. it's a tribute to the National Science Foundation, uh, which funded it, uh, which is a government agency um, that they, you know, they persisted. And uh, it was an amazing human accomplishment, really unbelievable. Yeah. And again, you know, from an engineering perspective, I think the the, the measurement taken there uh, with uh, with mirrors is like the the radius of an atom. Or it's it's like the that, most right? precise measurement made. Yeah. So yeah. the arms. So what happens is there's a laser that's being fired between mirrors, which are a mile apart. Yeah. And when the when the gravitational wave comes through, it moves the mirrors less than the, the than the than the, the 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 radius of a nucleus of an atom. Right. And yet it's able to be detected. Right. So that's it's one part that it's you're measuring one part in 10 to the 24. Right? It's, <laughs> that's unbelievable. It is yeah. really mind boggling uh, that this is a, this has been accomplished. Yeah, so so in your framework, in effective field theory, uh, when you reduce it to a particle, you could actually predict the existence of um, or, or even the properties of gravity waves when two black holes merge. Right, right. right. So we use the effective field theory. It's a lot easier to understand. So let, 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 I should first say, uh, we should first say, so how do the gravity waves show up? So what happens is two black holes if they're yeah. near enough to each other, they start to they start to go they orbit each other, and as they do so, they emit gravity waves and lose energy, and they start to inspiral. And as they inspiral, they emit more and more gravity waves, and and those signals are what we measured Earth. And mm -hmm. it, it, to actually solve for the motion of two real black holes has to be done on a computer. But what Walter and I did was we said, well, if we treat them as point particles using effective field theory, then we could solve the problem in a much easier fashion. So as long yeah. as they are far enough apart from each other that they don't merge, then they are treated as individual particles, then we could make predictions for the gravity waves uh, without having to resort to, to writing computer code. Yeah, so as, as they dance with each other, um, is a, so they, they, I would imagine there are different gravity waves being generated right it's not only at the at the point of merger is it right um, yeah, correct yeah yeah absolutely. and so did LIGO have sort of a history um of gravity waves coming from this one event no so you mean the first event that they saw yeah uh, so you know they were taking they they take data continuously and the, remember this this machine is so sensitive that when they were in Louisiana, if there was a large wave crashing on the coast, right? Or, <laughs> yeah. or if there was a truck driving anywhere near this underground detector. So it, you know, it's an incredibly sensitive machine. And yeah. um, they saw the signal. And so how did they know it was, it was black holes colliding? And the answer is, is that they have basically, uh, if you think about um, a, a, uh, from the point of view of a, of a police department, they have, they have catalogs of fingerprints, right? That's called right. the, they have what's known as templates, and then they the computer compares the signal 
to all these possible uh, collisions until they find one that fits uh, fits the uh, the signal. And uh, if you go online, I recommend your listeners can go to the LIGO website and you can yes. see the signal uh, versus the prediction uh, for for the for for certain masses of black holes, and they like sit on top of each other. It's unbelievable. Uh, um, I highly recommend people go to the LIGO website and check it out. Mm. Is is this uh, the black hole merger? I would imagine is a fairly common event. Right? Yes, absolutely, it's happening. So so since two thousand and sixteen. And they've increased yeah. the sensitivity of the the detector. Uh, there's now hundreds of of events, and as the sensitivity grows, events are coming in at a rate that they you know they barely have time to keep up with. Um, because they're, they're these these are extractic events, right? These are things coming yeah. from nearby galaxies, and there, as you know, there are many galaxies, and so the probability of these things happening is pretty large. So, so do we have an estimate of what the, you know, sort of the frequency, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is looking out, out to the universe. Right. So anywhere uh, two black holes merging, it, it, will, it will create something. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, they, but they have to be um, uh, uh, large enough so that we can see their, their signals and not so far away uh, that yeah. the signal becomes too weak. So um, I think the the expected event rate is pretty close. Actually, it's a little bit larger than they originally thought. So it's on the order of tens or twenty a month. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's something that you can prove actually with your model. So the event rate is something we can't prove. Uh, the event rate has to do with star formation and densities of stars and uh, regions. So what we do yeah. is we assume that two guys are going to collide, and if you give us the mass. And for a given mass and spin, then we can basically yeah. tell you what the signal is going to look like. Okay, so 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 you have a heuristic that they can measure. Yes. Yeah, so we. If, so uh, yeah. I mean, I I should say what really happens is we give the experimentalists uh, formulas for for the characteristics, and then they take it uh, and they do very complicated analyses on it um, to you know to to make it to take that sort of raw prediction and make it to one which incorporates all the errors of the detectors and you know all the other details of the experiment they, they do the hard work is what i'm trying to say yeah yeah so so in conclusion ira so does this have any implications for you know everybody's trying to get gravity um into into a, a theory, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Into a grand unification. Yeah. Does this have any implications? Well, for that? Um, I think. It, well, it, you know, in in a in a tangential way, in the sense that um, we're able to calculate. We understand. We're able to understand better the quantum mechanics of black hole horizons. Uh, so, in that yeah. respect, you know, one of the key aspects of understanding gravity and quantum mechanics at the same time. Uh, the a, a place where they are sort of naturally married is at black holes. So many researchers mm -hmm. have focused their attention on uh, or, or people interested in quantum gravity and understanding the quantum nature of black holes in the hope that it sheds light. We incorporate quantum mechanics uh, and gravity. 
Yeah, so since you reduced a black hole into a fundamental particle, um, will a graviton look similar? Yeah, so if it, it exists, absolutely. So as long yeah. as long as you're looking at gravitons whose wavelength is large compared to the size of the object, it will look like a particle and it will produce the right result. Right. I know that there was some some hypothesis around, you know, a large number of primordial, small primordial black holes uh -huh. created uh, at the beginning of the universe. Right. Um, and then there is still, you know, a search for the dark matter and so on. Uh, are there any any um, any implications there um, with, with this? this um, idea? I don't think so. Um... Primordial black holes are interesting possible dark matter candidates, although it, there's serious problems with it. And it's, I believe it's become rather disfavored as a, mm. um, but yeah. no, we, you know, uh, you certainly could use our, our formalism to describe those objects, but it's not clear to me, given especially that um, we don't have any evidence for their existence or how we would look for them. Uh, uh, that that would be useful in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. You have taken one of the uh, the, the largest sort of heavy object in the universe and made it a fundamental particle. Yeah, and so it's coming full circle. Well, you know, for the <laughs> same reason, uh, Newton was able to understand the blocks sliding down the plane. We we're able to understand black holes in this way. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Ira. Thanks so much for spending my, time my with pleasure. me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.